makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Ambetu Wastelo, Chante Waste, Nape Chiu Zapiello, Le Unkipiki Hewastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. In addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Esopus, where the active breath of the Lenape Nation lives in what is now temporarily called the Catskill Mountains by the settlers Dutch and Americans. Regardless, they are the highlands of the Esopus. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse, and this is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio. And from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation, Liz Hill, the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. And our guest for the hour is Melanie Goodchild. Is an Anishinaabe or Ojibwe complexity and systems thinking scholar. She is Moose Clan from a Big Tigong, Nishnabeg, and Kitikashibi, First Nations. Melanie is currently a PhD candidate in social and ecological sustainability at the University of Waterloo and is a research fellow for the Waterloo Institute for Social Innovation and Resilience. She's a proud member of the Iron Butt Association, riding her Harley Davidson motorcycle 1,000 miles in 24 hours. Melanie is a faculty member with the Academy for Systems Change, the Wolf Willow Institute for Systems Learning, and is a scholar, practitioner, faculty member of the University of Vermont's MS and PhD in Leadership for Sustainability. She's also an advisor to the New Systems Awareness Lab at MIT. In 2022, will be a systems changer in residence with the Omidyar Group. Mulaney is an alumna of the IWF Leadership Foundation's Fellows Program in 2015 class, sponsored by Harvard Business School and INSED. Thank you, Mulaney Goodchild, for joining us here on First Forces Radio. And it's so good to talk to you. It's an honor because after reading this and having discussions with you and, and your friends, it even means more that these peoples that are listening to First Voices all over continents really need a change in thinking and with the complexity that we have this albatross 
of thinking that we need to think in the Western way. And yet there's always been an, another way of a systems thinking scholar that you, you talk about. But there has been an older way that seems to be coming through now. And with your studies, that, that, that coming through, quote unquote, is more or less uh, rooted in indigenous thinking. And so I'd like to welcome you here with that big introduction, Melanie. Miigwech, miigwech, Chirokasin. So it's an honor to be here. Uh, just to introduce myself in, in the language, um, following our protocol, so bojo and dinawamaganaduk, apajigo, miigwech, bizindaliyag, wapskiyo, gichidakwe, zanang, indigenakaz, waban, nangakwe, indigenakaz, moose and dodama, moose clan, and those were my two spirit names. I said greetings all of my relatives. Thank you for listening. Biktagong, Nishnaabeg, and Kitagonzibi, Ndonjaba. That's uh, Garden River First Nation and Pick River First Nation in Northern Ontario. That's where I come from. And uh, I am here near Niagara Falls, and that's the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Three Fires Confederacy. The Three Fires are Potawatomi, um, Odawa, and Anishinaabe. So Anishinaabe Kwayanda. And yeah, that... uh, you know, the, the, the way of thinking, it's interesting how in, in the West, particularly in the, in the academy, which is, you know, universities and colleges, they sort of discover things and say, oh, this is a new approach. <laughs> There's a new way. And that's exactly what I studied. I, I really am a systems geek and I was, I was interested in uh, what in, in my programs called complexity thinking and systems thinking. But that really within the West was a response to the scientific method, the, the, you know, the way of thinking coming out of the Enlightenment, which was about reductionism. It was about breaking things down. It used a machine metaphor, so or kind of Newtonian thinking. And so the world was looked at like it was like a clock and you could break it apart and understand everything that was going on by looking at the pieces you know, of the clock. Or I like to think about it like, like a motorcycle. But, but the motorcycle, uh, you know, my sacred pony, is more than just a bunch of parts. And to really understand it, there's different elements to it. And so they, they, uh, they being Western scholars, started to look at, I think, different worldviews outside of the academy, outside of science, certainly indigenous and other worldviews that understood irreducible wholeness. And so that irreducible wholeness is the kind of um, straightforward way of thinking about what I study, systems and complexity. There's all kinds of tools and, and methodologies that we use, but really it's, it's about understanding uh, the world with an open mind. So it's, it's kind of, uh, I think about it in, in that way in English, is open-mindedness. And it's, it's open-mindedness to the fact that what we see isn't the whole picture. The unseen is such a huge part of our own way of thinking as Nishnabe, as Indigenous peoples. And that unseen doesn't count um, because it can't be counted. Um, it, you know, the quantification of the world. And so I think from my perspective, I was really interested in talking to knowledge keepers, language speakers, especially elders from, from my own culture, but also other cultures, about how we understand flux, constant change, systems, interconnectivity. You know, we just understand that. It's in our languages, it's in our ceremonies. But in the West, they had to rediscover it and they named it. 
uh, named it systems thinking and general systems theory and complexity. And I'm interested in, in that because there are some new tools uh, that in this kind of complex world uh, that could be really useful for our communities. But I'm also really interested in the fact that this is the way that we've always thought. That, and that's the gift our ancestors gave us was a complexity mindset. Many the word that ties a lot of indigenous cultures, especially in Turtle Island or what is now um, North America. And you said it and we said it, and I think uh, your friends from uh, Canada said it yesterday, but the word Manitou. Some people say Manadu, some people say Manitou, and it kind of means the same thing in a different direction. We're coming from the same place, but we're all looking in different directions. And we know that we're coming from the same place. So in the flux of what you're talking about, what would Manitou tie us together with? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in from the interpretations I've heard, it's, it means mystery. It also means spirit. And, you know, when we say Wasa Nabida, uh, we look in all directions. And in all those directions are these spirit beings. And so it's connecting to spirit. It's in, and we say in Nishnabemuin, uh, which is like the great spirit or the great mystery. And so there was always a relationship um, uh, from ancestral times to those spirit beings. And in fact, when you can think in a way that privileges that spiritual relationship, those frequencies, uh, which often happens you know, in, in our ceremonies, that connection is to uh, what theoretical physicists in the West, uh, like David Bohm, have called the quantum potential or the quantum field. Uh, my, my colleague, Dr. Leroy Littlebear, he talks about that. And he talks about how um, there's a constant state of flux. And so in the East, they might call it chi or, or energy. Um, George Lucas would call it the force. I, I think it's, you know, there's, there's a connection there. And if we don't see it, the, we're taught in, through Western education uh, about observation, right? And empiricism, or what we call empirical data and positivism. So the things we can see and count and measure are, are what make up reality. And we know that that's not a complete picture. It's very limited. And so I think systems thinking and complexity uh, do make room within Western thinking traditions for spirituality. So it kind of resonates with uh, settler logics. And they hear about quantum physics. And I think that's why David Bohm and, you know, Leroy Littlebear sat down and had, had conversations. Um, and that's where that, that connection is. And so the, the disenchantment of the world, I've read that term, this idea that uh, indigenous peoples have maintained deep spiritual connections to the world around us, to those spirit beings. But in the West, that was um, put to sleep, is how I've heard it. It was put, made dormant by ideologies like Judeo-Christianity, science, um, rationalism. So you're not a rational thinker if you're having conversations with trees. And yet I've had so many people from different cultural backgrounds come to me and say, but here you are holding an eagle feather or a turtle rattle or your drums and you're talking about them like they're people, uh, kin. And I say, yeah, but we're not really talking about them like they're people because that's an anthropocentric, you know, or a human centric way. I said, those are our, those are our relations because we're spirit beings too. We're just here physically right now and you see us that way. So the, the work I think of, of systems thinking and I, I, 
put a term out there, um, bringing it together with our worldview called relational systems thinking. And it's really about taking some of those, you know, complexity teachings from the West, but always privileging relationships. And the first relationships come from spirit. Those are our first relationships are with Manadog, the Manadog, the spirits. And those first relationships that you talk about in terminology that we're using now, what, you know, what I was first referred to, oh, you see things in pictures. Then I had to expand that and say, well, if it's like a movie screen, I, in my language, I see the whole picture. But when I speak English, I'm only seeing part of the picture. Then it moved on to, oh, you're very poetic. You're, it's like poems. So we understand what you're talking about. So then I had to correct them and say, I don't think we're metaphorical thinkers or whatever that is. It's more or less we are metabolizing all this energy. And that's where our language, and we talk about the flux with David Bohm and they were a little bear and yourself. It's the metabolizing and what is Teokasin and what is Belaini talking about when we when they talk about the flux in metabolizing through our languages? Yeah, it's, I mean it's interesting because I've heard other indigenous scholars who study systems and complexity, like uh, Pueblo scholar Gregory Cajete and my friend and colleague Tyson Young Comporta, who's Aboriginal from Australia, they do talk about metaphor because that's an English term, you know, and so it kind of, we, we think about the metaphoric mind and, and speaking in metaphors. <clears throat> but I think for us, those, those metaphors in English are those spiritual relations. And, and that is in our language. And metaphors, I think, are a way for people in English, which is a very low context language. And I've, I've, you know, looked at linguists and, and studied uh, some linguist uh, theory. And, you know, in our languages, we have something called um, hollow phrases. And English doesn't like hollow phrases. And a hollow phrase is a word bundle. And so most of our words are a bundle with many other teachings. And so, you know, language speakers who speak fluently will, will break down this word comes, you know, part of it comes from heart and it comes from here. And it's all animate, right? It's all verbs. And so the metaphor helps people understand when you say, well, it's like, you know, like the drum is like the heartbeat of Mother Earth. I mean, it's kind of a metaphor. And so you tap into like a metaphoric sense of reasoning, but really it is the heart. And I think that's where it sh maybe it shifts. If I understand, you know, uh, metaphor, it shifts for us into know that that it is the drum. You know, the drum is the heartbeat of Mother Earth. So it's not like something. And I, I think from the the best place to engage with that kind of sensibility or the uh, say the logics of our ancestors is in the language. You know, and I don't speak Nishnabemowin fluently. I'm learning because my mom and dad went to residential school. And I heard that language, though. Two of my grandparents did not speak a word of English. And I would go with my dad um, and listen to the language when I was small. And then and he passed away when I was nine from leukemia. So I, I lost those conversations that he would have with, you know, my grandma and, uh, and, and his family. But when I hear that in ceremony now, and my, my friends last night, <clears throat> my relatives who, who speak Nishnabemowin influently, whenever I ask for translations, it's beautiful because it's a back and forth of context and meaning and, you know, what am I, like, because English is low context, that means there's definitions, right? It's all about definitions. Here's, and you study that in school, here's the definition of resilience. 
And when you talk to our people about that, it's like, well, what do you mean resilience? In what context? And what land are you talking about? And, you know, and, and that's what I've been doing in my studies is <clears throat> text language speakers and, and say, how come we don't ever say wilderness? <laughs> I've never heard anybody say wilderness. And uh, Albert Hunter from Manitou Rapids, you know, he texted me back and he said, uh, yeah, we say Gedakimanan. It means everything, everything in creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the waters, the trees, and us, our sacred place in creation. So that's a hollow phrase, right? And English doesn't like that. English is so precise and low context and noun-based. And I know I've heard you talk about nounification. I love that term. And it's true, you know? And then when I talk to the elders and the language speakers, they always come back to me with a verb. It will never be a noun when I'm trying to um, kind of, I guess, decolonize systems thinking and re-indigenize it. It's probably more what I'm doing is re-indigenizing uh, systems thinking. This is a great way to think about things about the low context uh, language you talk about and hollow phrasing. And it seems that way when I'm talking with a, I call it Westerner, and they're trying to fill the space between conversation, you know. We have to do it because of the radio show to let them know that this is existing. And the hollow phrasing is that we have to fill in the, the quiet time. We have to fill in the silence because that makes people nervous, you know. But to realize that that's energy is not the first and first thought of a Westerner. It's almost like they have to rationalize that it's there. But we feel it. So we have to give that respect when we have our conversations in real time, I'd say, with our elders. Now, I want to go back to you mentioned um animation the the animism you know that or believe that native people are animists but i go one step further that that's true we often model our lives and our med medicine comes from and being shown to us by animals our brothers and sisters and then the other part is well let's go one further is that because of our creation stories we actually are in part and the whole is that we are astralists, if I could say that. We're always thinking about the stars. We're never leaving out the cosmos in our contextualizing that original thinking. Your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think, you know, in uh, in our teachings, like in my uh, naming, when I received the two spirit names that I have, both of those names, Wapskio Gichidalkwe Zanam, Anung is star, indigenous cause is what I'm called. And Waba Anung Akwe is also star, like a morning star. And the the teachings that we were given in that sweat lodge when I was in that ceremony about those two names is I've had these helpers with me, and those helpers are two orca whales. And so I've dreamt about these orca whales, two of them my whole life. And I thought that was kind of odd because they were like, you know, woodland people. And I know a long time ago we were on the coast and we migrated inward. So, you know, there was this real connection. But I, I didn't understand why I was dreaming of whales. And so I went to my sister, Eleanor Skeed, and she had dreamt of whales when she was young. And she went to an elder uh, back home in Treaty 3. And he said, what were you doing in your dream? And she said, well, I was standing on the shores of Lake of the Woods and I had a bucket. And he said, well, you have to feed that whale because there was a whale in, in the river, you know, not in the ocean. And he said, those spirit beings that are in the water, the people that live in the water, they travel through all the waters. And so that's why we're connected, you know, all over the world through the water. And I have a, um, a tattoo uh, of, of two orcas um, on my arm. And the the orcas that named me, there was a female orca from the north 
and a male orca from the south. And those are where my two spirit names come from. And those have been traveling with me. What's interesting is they're the representatives of the star people on earth in our culture. And the elder said, if you look at the blowhole of an orca whale, it's in the shape of a star. And so we're, we're in our ceremonies and our teachings, you know, so every time I, I speak my name, if I meditate and I concentrate, which I don't always do, sometimes I just blah, 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 you know, uh, my names. Uh, and I only translate them in certain contexts, but the, the, the idea of when I say them and I'm calling my spirit forth, I'm also acknowledging those two spirit helpers, those two guides. And so when we feast, uh, I, when I offer my feasts, I was instructed by those spirits to also feast the whales. And so I always have fish uh, in the feast. And then I go to the shoreline of whatever lake I'm at. And there's always been water around me. Water has taught me so much in my work where the, the teachings of, you know, even um, I mentioned earlier resilience. When I was studying that, there's a, a definition in the West of resilience. Uh, and it comes out of a work by uh, a scholar named C.S. Hollings. Anyway, it's the capacity of a system to absorb a shock and not flip into something else. Like when a lake dies, right? It's unrecognizable as a lake if it's just like a dry bed. I asked two language speakers and they came back with, with two different verbs, but of the same kind of uh, hollow phrasing, I guess, which is sibiskagad, which is the twists and turns of a river through the landscape, and mamasinjige which is the quick twists and turning of the river as it goes around. That's how they define resilience. And they said, are you near a river? And I said, yes, I was writing a paper for university. And I was near a river that was really twisting and turning because it was spring runoff. And Eleanor, she said, uh, well, you should go and thank that river because she's teaching you resilience. She's teaching you the meaning of it. And I thought, that's really significant. And that's the difference between, you know, writing a paper and looking at a definition in, in a low context kind of language like English versus the experience of going out onto land and sitting by that river to be taught resilience by that being. And so whether it's, it's animals like orcas or where they live, water, those are all beings teaching us. In your complexity and system thinking as a scholar, I'm hearing the resilience word a lot. And the difference between resistance and resilience, could you explain that the way you're, you're, you're learning and teaching and, and telling people about the difference between those two with complexity and systems? Yeah, I'm from the West, resilience, that, that definition is that um, there's a, a, a concept called complex adaptive systems. And so systems are all around us. I mean, the human body is a system, our house is a system, the economy is a system. When we say complex, it means they're diverse. So the systems are made up of a diversity of components and variables. Adaptive means they learn. So they're self-organizing and they learn. And then a system. And then we kind of set a boundary arbitrarily around the system, right? We kind of just choose to say this is how I look at the political system or I look at my community as a system. So as a complex adaptive system, it has different properties. And one of those properties is non-linearity. And this is really different than the way most uh, things work in the West is we assume that it's linear. So there's A and B equals, you know, something to happen. But there's all kinds of unintended consequences and there's dynamics like, you know, um, 
outside forces to the system. So the system's open to outside forces. And within all of that, there's this concept of resilience, which is that there will be mechanisms within that system that will have it be very robust. And it doesn't mean that that system's producing desirable outcomes. The economy is very robust and we're destroying Mother Earth uh, through capitalism and consumerism the commodification of our earth, all of that is part of this complex adaptive system. I think the resistance within it, so the resistance, it's interesting in systems because in English, you, we tend to have a, a valuative um, framing. So we think of resistance either as bad or good. Uh, within systems, those are neither bad or good. So the system can be very robust, but it could be a, a system producing undesirable outcomes that's robust and very resilient which is not a good thing. <laughs> if, if it's resilient in destroying the earth, uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. So there's, so within the systems uh, scholarships, it's not as um, sort of valuative or we're not assigning value to it. We're just recognizing patterns. And that's a really core, I think, uh, skill, I guess you could say, of systems thinking complexity is pattern recognition, which I think indigenous peoples around the world are, are pretty brilliant at. Uh, we see the patterns of Mother Earth, and that's how we learned how to survive. And so the, the resistance, I think, um, can be something positive in the sense of uh, a system or people resisting things like oppression and, and suppression, you know, resisting genocide as much as we can. Resilience could be survival, but it's also about, you know, finding what we call leverage points. Leverage points are places to intervene in a system. So if that system's nonlinear, if we intervene at one point, it doesn't actually mean we're going to have the, you know, the influence in the system that we want. We have to think about all the other variables, side effects. That's an easy way to kind of think about it. And, and there's a bunch of tools we use, like systems mapping, to, to try to understand the behavior of a system. And this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. You have been listening to Melanie Goodchild, who is an Anishinaabe complexity and systems thinking scholar. We've been talking about some very interesting thoughts about language, about verbs, about energy, about changing a way of being that the ideas may be a little different from what you've heard in the standard way of describing what noun and subjects and concepts are for the mainstream and this language that we speak. And we'll be back. We'll segue to this and we'll come back to you in the second half hour. Thanks for joining us. I hear a sound It's going through my brain I hear talking I feel the falling rain I see a young man crying Cause the whole world has let him down I see a young man crying Staring at the cold, cold ground My mind is like a spring In a clock that won't unwind Can't see, can't think, can't feel I'm out of time I'm up and I'm down Tell me where will it This carousel, tell me when will it end? 
I hear thunder And I can feel the wind I can see angry faces In the eyes of men I hear talking of people The whole world is gone insane And all there is left Is the falling rain This is Teo Kusing Ghost Tours, First Voices Radio. I want to thank you. And as we segue into the second half hour, I want to say thank you to Malcolm Byrne for bringing that song to us, Fallen Rain, by the Neville Brothers, or at least sung by the Neville Brothers, the album Brothers Keeper. The writer of that song is Link Ray, who is a Shawnee native person from North Carolina and was taught guitar at the age of eight and how to play guitar from this black man named Hambone. And I'd like to bring that to you and thank once again Malcolm Byrne for bringing that to us here on First Voices Radio. We've been listening to Melanie Goodchild, who's an Anishinaabe complexity and systems thinker scholar, and we talk about the systems change, how there's actually another way effectively to deal with the world, to perceive the world that is older than the newer way that came here but i'd like to thank you again let's go back to the interview with melanie goodchild it makes me expand thinking and actually the feeling of everything about minds and heart connection our relationship and actually we have in our our language nasula that the head the brain that everything that we think in a western i think therefore i am actually turns into the seed of the heart where we can explain it as we think therefore we are so it takes the individualism out of having to be alone in the sense of the individualism as an I, as a noun versus individualism 
as a verb. So the I becomes a verb in our language. And I'm thinking the differences between the pair of box, I call it, and it's the time has a beginning and ending. And so therefore that's the front and the back of the box. And then it has a superior and a inferior, and that's the top and the bottom. Then it has a side called cause and effect. So this is the pair of box I talk about. I'm saying that we're defining ourselves within that box. Essentially, it's a very binary language that we have to use to explain our existence. Part of, uh, you know, this this paper I wrote, I wrote a paper with some elders, some Haudenosaunee elders last year and some systems thinkers. Uh, so the Western systems thinkers from MIT, colleagues of mine, a, a gentleman named Peter Senge and another scholar named Otto Scharmer. Uh, Peter wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, which is about the learning organization. Uh, Otto Sharma wrote a book called Theory U. And then I also sat down with Haudenosaunee elders, because I'm here in, in Haudenosaunee territory, Mohawk elders. So it was Dan Longboat, Diane Longboat, Rick Hill, and Kevin Deer. And they taught me about the two-row wampum belt. And I didn't know, like, the teachings of it. I heard of it, you know, as a treaty and they talked about the, the river of life and these two vessels sharing the river of life together. So the, the Dutch and later the, the French and the British uh, sailing ships and the Iroquois birch bark canoe and how that was a treaty of, of respect and friendship. But also um, it recognized the differences, but that they were equal. So equal, but differentiated. And so this became a metaphor for. Uh, this approach to doing systems thinking work that that brings in our indigenous um, perspectives. So we're sharing the river of life together, and those are equal and differentiated. But the space between Willie Ermine, a pre-scholar, he talks about ethical space. My uncle Dan Longboat, he talks about sacred space. And so it's like this third space. And that third space resists binary thinking, because binary thinking, uh, I think, also comes with hierarchical thinking. We sort of can't help, we're sort of conditioned to choose one as better than the other, good and bad, black and white. And Arkan Lashwala, who I've never met, but I've read his book, uh, he's an elder from Peru, he talks about in his language, there are not the opposites that you hear in English. And so they're not conditioned to think in binaries. And instead, it, there's like not a word for like love and hate, you know, there's love and then there's not love. So you have to really think about, like, what does that mean? And so the third space, he talks about dancing with two ideas until the presence of a third shows up or emerges. And I love that. That's kind of what, to me, relational systems thinking is. It's like you're dancing with these ideas until a third shows up. So it builds on, like, two-eyed seeing, Albert and Regina Marshall's work about using, you know, one eye uh, from the West and kind of one eye from your Indigenous perspective. But I think it takes, a, um, takes on a new perspective as well, which is the space between. It's like when the fresh waters and uh, the salt waters, I read in Australia, a scholar talks about as a magical space of creation when they mix together. That's a little bit what, when you bring together, you know, these different worldviews, Instead of being trapped in binary and hierarchical thinking, you're actually transcending those binaries. And it's very difficult for us to do because we're, we're so used to taking a side and choosing and debating and defending something. Um, instead, it's like really open-mindedness to, to different options that may not even be right in front of you. They're, it's going to emerge 
uh, as you take the time to meditate together, I think as well, it's really a collective act when you sit in circle with people and you can, you know, start to think about different, they're all their different perspectives. Oh, that's very inclusive thinking. And, and I'm going back to what you mentioned a few days ago about cultural fluency. I think Dan Long, Longboat, your uncle said this, and then you just mentioned we have to use what I call a military language, a war language of choosing sides and debating who's right or wrong, defending. It's, that's a war language. It sounds like, wow, this is, we're using a, a, a tactical language. Whereas the other ones, like there is no walls, there you know, no need to debate. We listen to each other, no matter how far extreme we are, we still listen. And that engenders the so-called freedom of my mind and freedom that, that no one can own anything. So I go back to the domination factor, that, that there is no such thing as we don't have that the concept or uh, the word. Nowadays, that cultural fluency that Dan Longboat is talking about could actually be, be listened to by the younger people who are so caught up in the patriarchal system of the West. And I think that's part of your teaching or your, your showing people that there is another way and it may be based even further back than 2,000, 3,000 year old uh, Western democracy in the way we're supposed to think logically. So yeah, I think there's a question in that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think there is, you know, like cultural fluency when, um, when Uncle Dan talked to me about that, we were speaking of, first of all, my relationship, you know, to him and his culture. <clears throat> because I'm Anishinaabe and he's Haudenosaunee. And so I had a lot to learn and, and vice versa. And so we're both practicing. He would say something uh, and teach me. And it wasn't that I was, you know, um, going to become an expert on Mohawk culture or anything like that. It was because in order for me to understand what he was going to teach me, something in their language or teach me about the Tua Wampum Belt, I had to practice cultural fluency, which was to be able to be fluent. And, you know, a simple example of that is when I sat down with the Mohawk elders uh, a couple of years ago uh, before COVID, we were in Six Nations. And in, in Anishinaabe, when we sit in circle, uh, we go from, we go clockwise. And so we, you know, start kind of in the east and go around. And in Haudenosaunee territory, they go the other direction. And then you can commit a faux pas and say, you know, that's, you might say that's the wrong direction or they go backwards. But to us, like we're both looking at each other saying you're going the other direction. And it isn't about wrong or backwards. It's about what are the protocols for and the teachings, because those come from a place of spirit. And that's what he, he also says. And he says it in the article that we wrote, that intelligence or knowledge, I should say, knowledge in the West comes from the minds of men and women, and predominantly men. But in our cultures, knowledge comes from a place of spirit. And, you know, our medicine people and our, our, our uh, teachers will access that place of spirit. And so when even to this, um, you know, this sort of complexity scholarship, I still go to the elders and into ceremony and say, you know, I remember asking in ceremony, I'm, I'm kind of bringing this Western science to our, our people uh, and I'm translating it. And the elder asked, I gave him tobacco and in ceremony, he came back and he, and he said, the spirits want you to continue doing this work because we have science too. And, and, you know, and so Gregory Cajete calls it native science. And I, I love that because it really does, it's a way to help 
um, Western thinkers who who practice something called scientism, which is that hierarchy that it's you know the best and only way of thinking. That scientism has to be challenged because our our native science isn't the same as their science. There's some common principles, I and mean, we have observation, and you know we have and things like that as well, but. The way that we talk about native science is around the spiritual nature of the laws, the first law, natural law, the law of relationships. Like a lot of our nations have those those similar teachings, different because of where we are in our cultures, but but the same principles, like the law of relationships, you know, that we're all related in Dinawamagan and Duk, like we're we're all related to each other, that that comes through, or we are one, I've heard from cultures on the West Coast. So this idea of we are one or we're all related or everything is connected, I mean, that's kind of systems thinking. But we don't have to label it from the West. It's just, it, it is who we are and what we do. It's just interesting to go back and kind of re-indigenize systems thinking and complexity because it's it's not new, even though it's been yeah. presented as something new. Yeah, and I like that, the part that you talked about and you said, well, they like to discover things and when we materialize something, it's like it's not real until we can feel it. But in the other way, the energy, the presence is there. I think that kind of sums up some people who don't understand what we're talking about. Maybe they do. I'm not saying that they don't. Maybe by listening to these voices of indigenous peoples that sooner or later, they will feel their own indigeneity in that. Do you think that by example that you're showing and that you're teaching and that's what's needed now to maybe balance the imbalance, basically, that's going on with the earth and people. Yeah, I think so. You know, when I um, I read um, Wendy McCone's genius's book uh, about re-indigenizing or decolonizing, actually decolonizing uh, Anishinaabe botanical knowledge, and so when we think about colonization and you know colonizing the mind and decolonizing our minds. She talks about plant knowledge, and she spent time on the land with elders. and And what happened was, you know, the 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 botanists came here, and they went out on the land with our peoples, and they learned all of those plants because they this was new to them, right? They had not come; they were not from Turtle Island. And then they gave them Latin names and English names. And then our children go to school, and we learn, uh, you know, an English name for our plants, for our relatives, and we don't learn the. The, the true teachings and, and spend time we can spend. Um, I think last night uh, my relatives were saying, if you want to learn all the teachings of this one particular medicine, it would take you four years, you know? And she talked about her lodge that she's been preparing. She's been preparing that lodge for 27 years. So these concepts of space and time and, you know, these, these ideas that uh, English and colonial kind of um, mentalities we call them mental models actually in uh, this comes out of my my friend peter senge's work mental models are these beliefs these stories that we tell ourselves about how the world works and those mental models when they when they're challenged uh it's it's very kind of destabilizing for people uh they they maybe push back because they've held true to that belief and it could be a foundational and profound belief it could be something that they hold true through a discipline. You know, they've studied psychology or, or law or something. Um, and it could be something as simple as, I believe uh, if I do this, you know, this should happen. And when those mental models are, are challenged, 
And that's kind of the work of systems thinking or challenging mental models because they are they're put into action, you know, like that's what racism is. There's a belief in the inferiority and the dehumanization of somebody based on the color of their skin or the language they speak. And then we put that into action. That's what racism is. And so when we put these mental models into action, um, challenging the mental models pushes back on a system. And there are certain people who benefit from the way that system operates and they're going to push back. And so there's a lot of healing involved. And so I, I often talk about healing self and systems because systems thinking is that you have to recognize self in system. And so it isn't separate. You know, it's, it's easy. It's kind of a, a simple way to think about the bad guy over there, um, the big corporations or, you know, whatever kind of issue that is really you're passionate about, there's usually a bad guy, you know, the environmentalists or the oil companies are, but, but in a system, we're all participating in that. And we need to look at our own relationship to all of those power dynamics. And so I think the, the whole kind of concept of decolonizing and, and shifting to a different way of, of seeing the world that's the, the work that I'm trying to do and model. And so, you know, looking at different methodologies to do that work and, and privileging spirit, ceremony and language in that work is, is so important. And so I get to geek out on, you know, systems mapping. But I remember when I introduced this idea of systems mapping um, to some elders on the West Coast, the first thing they said is, well, we're going to map in our language because if we don't, the map is not going to really be our map. And I've never seen a systems map in an indigenous language. And map really just, it looks at what we call feedback loops and they're reinforcing and balancing. But anyway, you're identifying variables within a system, right? So if we look at a farm as an example, there's, you know, so many elements to it. But if you were mapping in English, it would be very different than mapping that system in Lakota, for example, yeah, because yeah. you would bring your worldview to it, you know, and that's really an exciting uh, idea for me. <laughs> it is. I'm driving and someone's asked me for directions. I'll say, well, there's a big hill and there's a tree over here and you turn a right and they're like, that doesn't make sense. And so that's the deal to be to be in touch with the earth and just to not redefine what you're saying, but I, I, I go with the terminology that the self is like a body, right? Body is in the soul. But if you put the the soul in the body, then then you're really by yourself. You're alone. That's the the savior mentality. You're always looking and wanting for something. And I know a lot of languages, indigenous languages worldwide, don't have the word for want. Want to kind of switch a little gear, um, pun intended, is that you're a member of the Iron Butt Association, riding in a Harley Davidson for a thousand miles within 24 hours. Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I definitely think that's a crazy thing to do. And I did it 10 years ago for my 40th birthday. So I turned 50 this year. And for my 40th, I was dealing with, you know, oh, uh, you know, mortality and and I thought I had read about, so it's, it's uh, I, I bought a Harley Davidson motorcycle in my 20s and I had a little Sportster and then I upgraded to a, the big bike I have now, which is a street glide. It's a touring bike and it's red. And that, that bike, I thought that first year I owned it, I was turning 40 as well. So I went on an iron butt ride and you, you keep track of your mileage and it was a thousand miles in 24 hours. And it's really, um, 
I think the, the really cool thing about it, I don't know if I'd ever do it again because you, it's, it's a long ride. I mean, you just, yeah. you know, your wind in your face is great, but for 24 hours, it's long. I actually rode, I think, um, uh, 1,650 kilometers in 27 hours because, you know, you, the whole time you're on, it's, it's a long ride. Uh, but I was just going to say that my first long haul, what we call a long haul, which I went with some friends of mine from Oneida. Uh, so they're uh, Haudenosaunee, Oneida. Um, Oneida Nation, and um, we rode out to uh, Montana and down through South Dakota, and we came back, and we went through Crow Agency, Montana, and I rode my bike in the Battle of Little Bighorn, and the Crow people have wild horses, and two horses came and and rode beside me as I rode my Harley uh, through the field there. And it was it was really beautiful, and I mean that's the kind of metaphor that I've I've used to to talk about you know mechanistic thinking, is that you've got a motorcycle and you can break down the parts, but to really understand that we have a relationship and that that that's my my pony, my sacred pony, and uh, I'm always grateful to you know be able to ride. Um, yeah, it's it was it was it was a long haul. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been dying to ask you that question. Like, are you crazy? But <laughs> thing, you have something coming up in April with the Willow Wolf Willow Institute, and I'm wondering if if you would announce that so I can you know maybe straighten it out for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Wolf Willow Institute for Systems Learning is a group that I work with out of Alberta, Banff, Alberta, but we're, we're running a program. I think there's about 116 people registered so far, and it's called a cafe at the edge of the world, tapping into metaphors. And I'm hosting parts of it. And people are, uh, you can go to the, the website for Wolf Willow, uh, which is, I think it's www.wolfwillow.org. And there's, uh, there's a deadline to register, and I think the deadline's uh, in April, early April, and it's open to anyone across Turtle Island. And it's to come and have sessions with us to talk about complexity and systems thinking, but from, you know, decolonized perspectives. And I'm going to have some guests and, and have uh, this type of conversation with different folks. And uh, it would be great if people would take a look at that. And there's no cost. Uh, it's sponsored. So everyone can show up for as many or as little as the sessions as they want over five days. And it's the very last week of April, April 25th to the 29th. Thanks for taking us on a ride, pun intended. It's an honor just to, to see that you're, you're moving things. And I feel that motion all the time when I'm talking to you, but it's good. Miigwech, thank you. It was such an honor to, that was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, to talk about these things from our perspective, because I'm often doing the translating work um, and to be challenged and thinking about it from our perspective is, is really good medicine, mashkiki, good medicine. So, thank you for listening and sharing with me. The murder and the shame Secrets being exposed, yeah Truth we must uphold, yeah Constant fight for justice To pave the way for change 
Chain, Xavier Rudd and Jay Miller. The new album, Shanjuk Moon. You heard an interview with Melanie Goodchild, who is an Anishinaabe complexity and systems thinker. Google Melanie Goodchild, M-E-L-A-N-I-E, Goodchild, one word. That You can actually go and find what we talk about here and makes you wonder that maybe the way you've been thinking, mm, there's got to be another way to think because there is. I'm letting you know that there is. All right, this is First Voices Radio. My name is Tio Kazan Ghost Horse. The dark and distant drumming, the pounding of the hoops, the silence of everything that moves. Late at night you see them Decked out in shiny jewels The coming of the caravan of fools Like the wings of a dove The waiter's white glove Seems to shimmer by the light of the pool Some dull blinding winter When you can't help but lose You're running with the caravan of fools Love and devotion Deep as any ocean Don't play by Anybody's rules With your carousel of horses And your unforeseen forces You're running with The caravan of fools Caravan of fools Caravan of fools You're running with the caravan of fools. 